can imagine there's any number of emotions you might be feeling. And you wouldn't be wrong to feel any of them. Heartbreak. Hope. Even anger, actually. I think you could even say you might be spirit-led to feel angry right now about that. Um, and not only would you not be wrong to feel those things, I think you wouldn't be alone in feeling those things. And ultimately, what I mean when I say that is you would not be alone because the Savior of the world felt them too. A song we sang earlier, like Bob said, it was quite the guidance this morning from the Spirit. A song we said earlier was drawing from Isaiah and from the book of John and describing Jesus as he walks through the valley of the shadow of the death with us and ultimately for us. Oh, the perfect son of God and all his innocence here walking in the dirt with you and me. He knows what living is. He's acquainted with our grief, man of sorrows and son of suffering. Blood and tears, how can it be? There's a God who weeps. There's a God who bleeds. Oh, praise the one who had reached for me. Hallelujah, the son of suffering. <clears throat> Thank God we have a God like that. <laughs> a God like that, who, God, who, who expresses his image perfectly in the son. Uh, because we can get all confused about images, can't we? We can paint all the wrong pictures. It's good that we're not alone because we get awful confused when we are alone. Sometimes our thoughts take us in all kinds of directions we ought not to go. But we know that the God who doesn't leave us alone cares specially for children. Uh, even the context of this series is rightly put in that section of God's character that he cares for his children. Uh, when he brought his children out of Israel, or sorry, out of Egypt, when he brought Israel out of Egypt, he addressed them as his firstborn son. It's in Exodus 4, 23. He says, you're my children. I'm caring for you. I, I, I won't leave you alone. Let me guide you. Let me help shape you. Um, this is actually quite beautiful. It's even played out in what we call the Ten Commandments itself. If you look at the verbs in the Hebrew, the verbs are actually singular verbs. They're addressed to, to his child. It's not plural, it's singular. It's down to the, to the very smallest amongst them. Uh, he's addressing this to his firstborn child. This firstborn child that he has such hopes for, such, such a beautiful vision for, actually. Because as you know, when you study the Ten Commandments, there's ten of them. But what you might not know is that when you hear the number ten, there ought to be some things popping up in your mind. There, there are tens that show up in scripture. In fact, we get a little bit off course because we've translated these the 10 commandments, but that's not actually what scripture calls them. Scripture calls them the 10 sayings. The 10 sayings. Uh, if, you're, if you're looking for where to find that, you could look in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 13. It also says it in Exodus, but it calls it the 10 sayings. God speaking. You pay attention when God speaks. But the number 10, the number that he speaks there, the number of times he speaks is reminiscent of another time that he spoke 10 times. If you were reading closely, for instance, in Genesis chapter 1, you would notice that it said, and God said, let there be 10 times, 10 times. We're, we're meant to be on alert 
for the God who lovingly creates. And now, following the 10 plagues, he's recreating. What we have here is 10 sayings in creation where he lovingly brings forth all of the universe, all of the cosmos. And then the 10 plagues where people have rejected his vision for life and said, I won't follow you. I won't follow your God, the one true God. I have no interest in that. And what happens is the undoing of creation. The sun goes dark, the sun that he placed in the sky, right? The, the, the waters which he had uh, power over and had brought life out of become now a sign of death, right? But God is not done, our God, who is the God of the V-shaped life that says, I'll come down to you and I'll bring you up to me. He says, yes, the 10 plagues, all these things, they sought to undo creation, but here I am recreating. That's the context that we're stepping into. A God who loves his children and aims to recreate them in his image. In fact, that's where we are, talking about images. We're on command number two unless you're Lutheran, and then we're still on command number one. Because actually, you'd be surprised, it's actually difficult to count to 10, apparently. Christians have had a hard time of counting to 10. It says that there's 10 sayings. We know that we ought to find 10, and then we look at the passage and we go, okay, where does one stop and another one you know, begin and so forth? And so a lot of people actually think of this as still command number one, in which case we're going very slowly. <laughs> well, let's just call it command number two so we can feel some encouragement, right? <laughs> Talk about images. I want to actually look at it from Deuteronomy. They're, they're, they're very, very similar. Exodus chapter 20 or Deuteronomy chapter 5, these two times where we see the 10 sayings. It's a little shorter in Deuteronomy, so I just thought we looked there. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 5, the second-ish command. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, is a jealous God, punishing the children and the sin of the parents, the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. This actually turns out to be a little bit heavier than we might imagine. He seems to be taking idolatry quite seriously. It might be worth our attention. Wondering why does he think that this is actually generational, that the pain of worshiping idols would work itself out in the generations to come. Why? And certainly this command has gotten people's attention and perhaps it's because of the second half of that passage where people go, whoa, I'm on high alert now, right? The, the people who take the Pentateuch seriously have taken this command very seriously in, in various times, right? I, I might draw your attention to a reformer named Ulrich Zwingli who thought we've gotten off track he was a Swiss reformer. He thought, we got, we got all off track. We have all these images. He's thinking maybe of the relics and the icons within the Catholic and Orthodox traditions. And he says, we've got to, we've got to tear it all down. And Zwingli gets in, intensely passionate about what we might call iconoclasm, tearing down the icons. He whitewashes his church. He busts out the, the, the stained glass windows. He tears out the organ. You can, you can visit his church still today in Zurich. And you can see sort of what he's done there. there there's some replacements. Um, Mark Chagall's stained glass windows replaced the ones that he busted out following World War II. But he, he was 
I would maybe would say afraid to be in violation of the second commandment. And so he thought better safe than sorry. Even other religious traditions look at this and take it very, very seriously. If you were to look at Islam, for instance, and you were to, to, to maybe do a Google search of Islamic art, you will not find images of living beings. You will find geometric patterns, you'll find wonderful architecture, but you will not find images of human beings or other living beings because there's this sense we cannot violate that command. But I think it's probably more complex. Many things are. I think this one might be too. Because if we had read in Exodus chapter 20 and then just kept going, which might make some sense, just keep going, right? You get to Exodus chapter 25. And what is happening in Exodus chapter 25, but God is designing the tabernacle. He's designing the tabernacle. And actually in verse 18 of chapter 25, he says, here's what I'm going to need you to do. I need you to create these images of angels. And I, I need you to make the inside look like a garden. We need some plants. It's got to look real nice. Right? He, he actually is re-imaging, re I would say, the, the, the Garden of Eden for them. Right? the pomegranates and the stars and everything imaged there, he's reminding them of how creation is meant to be. But there are images, right? It, it's even true to say, if you get to Exodus 31, that you see a man named Bezalel who's been specifically blessed by God and in, in, able to make things out of the elements that would be images, that he's particularly chosen to guide the process of making the tabernacle. So it must be more complex than merely just staying away from all pictures always, everywhere. It must be more complex than that. So perhaps we should go back to the passage and ask, what is the complexity? What is it I need to know? And so we read after the fact that we're not to make any images, we read that we're not to make any images of heaven above or earth beneath or the waters below. Another thing that ought to have us on high alert, the number 10 had us on high alert and reminded us of creation. Remind us that God is not done with creation, that God is recreating. Well, this format, the heavens above, the earth beneath and the waters below also ought to remind us of creation. If you look all throughout the scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament, also in the New Testament, you see this understanding of creation as being three-tiered that God is the God who created the heavens and the earth and even the waters below. And it's fascinating to look at this, this, this construction, this understanding of the cosmos and note that God says, don't make any images of that in worship. Why would he be so concerned that they might be tempted to make images of creation and then worship? Well, let's remember where they're coming from. God who called them his firstborn said, I brought you out of Egypt. You are mine. You're my firstborn. I care a great deal about you, so much so that I'm going to refashion you in my image. But let's think then. They're brought out of Egypt for 400 years under the influence of Egypt. For 400 years, hearing their neighbors sing praises, recite poems, to gods and goddesses that are the gods and goddesses of the heavens above, the earth below, and the waters beneath. In fact, if you asked an Egyptian at that time, 
long time ago, but if you ask them, hey, would you just sketch out co the cosmos for me? Would you just, you know, you guys did good with the papyrus thing. Would you just take this pencil and just tell me, what does it look like? And they would make it look, they would say, well, it looks like this. There's a picture. Not to be too luxury or anything, but notice the shape. You have this sense in which the gods and goddesses are the cosmos. You have Nut, which she is the sky. You, you have Shu, who is the air. Geb, who is the earth. Even Ra, who is the sun. We have to be reminded that the Egyptians are not just polytheistic, they're pantheistic. They believe that the gods brought the cosmos into existence, but also are the cosmos. And if you're confused by that and don't think it makes any sense, that's only because it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but you have to remember then that these are the images that the Egyptians would have traveled with. They would have been worshiping not just gods and goddesses, but the creation itself. And for 400 years, the people of Israel have been steeped in that, formed by it. Maybe I should say malformed by it. And so God has brought his firstborn into the desert where there's no other voices. Finally, no one is reciting the wrong kinds of poems. No one is worshiping the wrong gods. And finally, it's his voice that they're hearing. And he, he reminds them, he reminds them, I brought all that into existence. It's not a creator. It's just the creation. What you're looking at isn't a god or a goddess. It's material that I brought into being. In fact, if you look at a picture, we have a picture of the Israelite understanding of the cosmos. It's actually exactly the same shape. It's just that they look at it and they go, yeah, God brought that into existence, but it's not itself a god. Right? This is actually part of the, the power of Genesis chapter 1. The people around Israel are worshiping the, the, the sun, moon, and stars. And, and God says, worshiping sun, moon, and stars? I didn't even bring that into existence until day four. That's like a JV thing for me. It's nothing. <laughs> it's not even hard, right? Why would you worship that? It's creation. So we have to remember that this is the context he's bringing them out of. And their temptation to, to continue on, steeped in the things that they learned, going forward with the things that they had been formed in for 400 years, he's got to rid them of it. You see, it's not just a matter of images, it's a matter of the heart. He says, don't make images of these things and don't bow down and worship them, right? Just like everything, it's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. You can see, actually, if you looked at Ezekiel 14, that, that God says through his prophet Ezekiel, you have made idols in your hearts. It's not just that you're fashioning it with your hands. You're, you're doing it with your hearts. And this has got you all off track. Remember how seriously God took this in the second half of that command, where he said this works itself out painfully in the generations to come. He seems quite concerned about it, about the rightness of worship, which to us might feel a little strange because we're in a context where people like to say things like all religions are the same. They like to say it doesn't matter how you worship, it's all the same in the end. 
But God doesn't seem to think so here in Scripture. He seems to think it matters. So I'd like to draw out just a few ways that I think it matters that, that we posture our hearts correctly only in front of the correct object of worship. We could see, for instance, that if we were to make images of the heavens above and the earth below and the waters beneath, if we were to posture ourselves in front of those things, we would be remiss because we would be diminishing God. Look at Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne. And the earth is my footstool. He's saying, I'm beyond the cosmos. Where is the house that you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? He's saying, you want to build a building for me? You're being silly. I'm beyond all. I don't need a temple. The whole cosmos is my temple. Have you not read Psalm 19? The heavens, and the, earth, the heavens are crying out day after day. They pour forth speech about the glory of God. Read it and think, yes, that's right. Creation is not worthy of my worship. In fact, it is itself worshiping the creator. So when we try to diminish it, get it down to where I can wrap my hands around it, build a temple for it so that I can just, you know, just kind of manage it. And that's exactly what was happening in these temples in the ancient Near East. They're literally taking care of the idols, giving the idols baths, putting food and water in front of the idols, taking care, managing it, having their, 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 it in their grasp. And this, God says, wait a second. My hand made all of these things. This is verse two of Isaiah 66. They came into being because of me. Don't diminish me that way. Don't make me fit inside this tiny box you would make for me. I'm beyond all that. It diminishes God. Inevitably, we'll find out it actually not only diminishes God, it misrepresents him. So we find that as human beings, we're not meant to worship creation, but we are meant to relate to it. Right? This, this series we've called 10 Keys to Flourishing. This is it. God is saying, here, let me position you how you ought to be positioned if you'd like to flourish. If all things are as they should be, shalom, or, or if they're all fixed and firmly the way they should be, which is the word tzedakah or righteousness, if that is the way it ought to be, there will be flourishing. And so for us to relate to creation, we maybe go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, and we see, yes, we are meant to relate to creation. We were placed in the garden to work it and to care for it. But we work and care for the garden because we're made in the image of God, not because it is God. Don't miss this. We're talking about images, and God is sort of saying, wait a second, you would like to make an image? I, that's my job. I already did that. I made you in my image. Why would, you, why would you do that? You're mine. I made you in my image. And because I care for creation, because I hold it together, you join me in doing so. This is what, we'll, this is what it will look like to flourish, to be yourself to work and care for the garden. Does God care about creation? Absolutely. Is creation worthy of our worship? Absolutely not. Look at Isaiah 50, sorry, Psalm 50. We see all throughout the Psalms and all throughout the scriptures that God's deep care for creation is in, 
all these different spaces in, in, in Scripture. It says here in Psalm 50, For every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains, and the insects of the field are mine. Jesus plays off this passage and says, You are worth more than many sparrows. But he knows every sparrow's name. He cares for creation. He holds it together, and it's your privilege to join him in doing it, but not to be postured in worship of it. That would be a diminishment of God and a misrepresentation of God. And the second problem now we're starting to see is that it's messing with the order of creation. Yes, the whole cosmos is God's temple. And what did he place in the temple last? What do you place in the temple last? You build the temple, and then you say, okay, this one was for Athena, so I put Athena in it at the end. Let's think back to Genesis. What comes last in the order of creation? Not the least important thing, but the most. He puts his image in the garden last. Why? Because he's saying, listen, you're the one that represents me, not these deaf, dumb, and you know, mute idols. No, 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 you. You represent me. And when things are in its right order, when things are, when things are as they should be, you are imaging my love and my character into creation. We might say reflecting who I am into creation. And part of that will be caring for creation, but certainly not worshiping it. Because when you do worship creation, when you get things out of order, things go sideways. The psalmist knows, Psalm 115, talks about idolatry, talks about what happens. It says, but their idols are silver and gold, Made by human hands, they have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. If, if you're following along, you're kind of thinking, well, I have all those things. Actually, I have a mouth. I can speak. I have ears to hear, eyes to see. In fact, I have ears to hear God's voice eyes to see his goodness and a mouth to speak about it. If we're, if we're putting things in the right context in the ancient Near East and we're talking about being placed in the garden and having God breathe life into us, the backdrop of it would be the Mesopotamians and the, and the Babylonians. And what they would do is they would create an idol and then they would have a ceremony in a garden by the river. And here's what they would do. They would have this, this ritual by which they thought they could open the mouth of the idol. Genesis is in conversation with that and saying, no, 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 those, are, those idols, they're deaf and dumb. They, don't, they can't speak, they can't see, they can't hear. You can. You're my child. You are in my image. You reflect my character. But here's the real problem where things get off the rails when we get out of order in creation, where the image of God starts making images and worshiping them. Here's what it says in verse 8 of that same psalm. Those who make them will be like them. Make the idols. So will all who trust in them. You become like what you worship. You are shaped by it. So, some Christian scholars like to say, you are what you love. You become like it. Well, let's think about these diminished representations of God, these misrepresentations of God, what were they like? What were they like? 
Well, we sometimes know what the actual image was. For instance, we know about the golden calf, right? When you get to Exodus chapter 32, Moses has been on the mountain. They say this. They say, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, let us make a God who will go before us. Let's put a God in front of our face. As for this fellow Moses, I don't know where he went. So you can see they're stirred up by their fears, and so they make an image. And you and I know that this image is of a golden calf. What's probably true here is they're actually trying to just represent Yahweh. They're so fearful. They're they're, they're so afraid. They want to bring it down to them and kind of have it in a space where they can sort of look out of the corner. Oh, yeah, still there. Good. We're still there. Their fear has caused them to create an idol, but it's their idol that gives them reason to be afraid because you become like what you worship. And in this case, the idols in the ancient Near East are horrifying, worth being afraid of. For instance, let's just cut right to the chase. Let's look at Leviticus 18, verse 21. It says, do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech. Whoa. Why would they even have to say that? I'll tell you why. People were doing it. Now, other places, that same God is called Baal. That might ring a bell. That the Israelites were actually turning uh, they're, they're, they're turning at different spaces. Fears have crept in, and they're actually even willing to worship all, even practice child sacrifice, which their neighbors were doing. What could drive you to do that? I think maybe the only thing that could drive you to do that is being afraid of not doing it. But look what's happening. Out of their fear, they make an idol. Because of their idol, they have something to be afraid of. Whereas our God in perfect love drives out fear. Fear is a powerful thing, but it ought not to have power over us. Yeah, Machiavelli's right. Fear is a powerful thing. Maybe it's even something that would make you go farther than even love, which is what he suggests, but in what direction? in the wrong direction. Remember, God in these commandments, in these 10 saying, is saying, listen, this is the direction of flourishing. I know you've heard rumors to the contrary, but this is the direction of flourishing where children are kept safe, where, where the order of creation is correct and you have the privilege of coming alongside me and caring for all of it, not being like these idols that lead people out to destroying each other. That's what the ancient Near Eastern people would do with their idols. They'd say, okay, this idol is asking us to go to war. The Assyrians, they have this reputation of being rather warlike. Why? They thought God wanted them to be. So they went out and did all sorts of inhumane things, tearing other people apart, tearing out the image of God and others. Yes, here's the third problem. The first being idol worship diminishes God. Second, it gets us all out of order in creation, which is a real problem as we've seen it deteriorates quickly. And third, not only does it diminish God, it diminishes mankind. To to worship an idol, to make an image and worship it. These idols that taught those people to tear each other apart, they're still whispering in our ears today. Remember, idolatry is a problem in the heart. 
So we might not worship Baal, but do you know anyone who might worship sort of a sense of power or authority, getting their identity there? And imagine what starts to happen when they feel their authority threatened. Do you think they might start to tear at the image of God and someone else in order to protect their own sense of self in such a situation? I do. What if money had become their idol? What if they were worshiping mammon? What kinds of things might they do to other human beings, maybe even out of fear that the money might go away? What kinds of things might they might do to tear each other apart in order to have this thing they could wrap their hands around? They'll, they'll diminish the image of God in others. Idolatry means that people become a means to an end. When your idol is money, people are just a way to get to the money. A good business deal. A relationship that might pay off in the end. This is what happens when you worship idols. It turns human beings into merely a means to an end. When, when things are as they should be, we are honoring the image of God we see in other gods making us in his image, God calling us to love him with everything we've got and our neighbors as ourselves. That's what it means to be human. That's what we're missing out on when we're not following after these 10 sayings, this chance to be fully experiencing the love of God, the, the, the image of God in each other. Yes, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says this, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, right? Have the right order of creation. But what idols do is we stop, we stop living out God's likeness. We look nothing like God when we're worshiping idols. We don't have the knowledge that God has that these are just things not worthy of our worship. We're not bearing the likeness of God that, that poured himself out for us. Instead, those people become a means to our own ends, and we miss out on the shalom that we were meant to experience. Idol worship diminishes God. It, it cuts him down to a size. It, it messes up the order of creation. It diminishes humanity. This word, image of God, is universal in Scripture, which is yet another thing that is best understood in the backdrop of the ancient Near East, where they did use the phrase image of God, but it usually only referred to a king or a queen. And everyone else existed for the good of the king or the queen. And God is saying, no, 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 no. It's not just one, it's not just Pharaoh. Pharaoh in the image of Rod. No, 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 we're all made in the image of God. It universalizes it. And to love others as ourselves means we get to experience that as it was meant to be experienced. But I, I, don't, meant to, I don't mean to be like an Eeyore about this. I don't want to leave us sort of dangling. Because the truth is, God has done something about it. God has spoken. Hebrews chapter 1 says, And in the most recent days, God spoke most fully through his son, Jesus. These sayings, they're still coming. The ten let their bees, 
the 10 sayings, and then God speaking most fully, most forcefully through his son, who is the image of the invisible God, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He did not leave us to our own devices, he did not leave us wallowing, confused about who we're meant to be and who he is. He spoke very clearly to us through Jesus, saying, this is what I look like. If you're confused about what God looks like, if sometimes you think he might look like Molech, if sometimes you think he might look like Baal, if you sometimes think he looks like Mammon, you're wrong. He looks like Jesus. If you want to know what the image of God is, is Jesus. It's, it's why the Christians had no trouble painting images of the characteristics of Jesus. Just go to the catacombs of Rome and you'll see hundreds of pictures of Jesus. Jesus as king. Jesus as the shepherd. Jesus as the one who left the 99 to get the one. This is what God looks like. This is what we were missing out on all those years where we were diminishing him down to bite-sized pieces that we could manage ourselves and assuage our own fears with and then cause fear everywhere we went. He's the image of the invisible God, and guess what? Our destiny to be recreated, the God who creates, recreates us in his image. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, restored creation, creation as it was always meant to be, fully experienced. I'd like to make just a small comment on this translation, and then we'll call it good for the day. This may not be the best translation of Romans chapter 8. It says, God works for the good of those who love him. It's, I want to say, I'll just, I'll say it softly. It's possible that the better translation is, God works for the good together with those who love him. Together with. Why would that be such good news? That I'm called into work. Because that's what I was always called into. Genesis chapter 2. To do the good work of reflecting his good heart into his good creation. I get to be fully human because he's reclaimed me, re-imaged me, remade me in his image one that reflects his goodness. Yes, I get to work for the good together with God. Meaning I have nothing to be afraid of. I'm with him. We together are with him shoulder to shoulder. The God who created us is committed to recreating us, which is how the story ends. Revelation 21. Revelation 21 and 22 actually are a mirror of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Check that out later today. Read Genesis 1 sort of slowly a few times and then read Revelation 21 and 22 and you'll see the same imagery. And what are we seeing? We're seeing a God who recreates, a God who loves his children so much that he's still calling us out of Egypt. All the Egypts that we keep lurking over our shoulders at, all the Egypts that we keep uh, following after, he says, I'm still calling you out of it and I'm still gonna remake you in my image. You're my child, of course. I'm like a father who waits outside the gates and goes running after his children. Of course, I'm coming after you. Of course, I'm making all things new. Did you think I would leave you to your own devices? 
you who have these fears and out of your fears create idols and then have a reason to be afraid? No, I would never leave you alone, nor would I forsake you. I'm making all things new. I'm remaking you, recreating you in my image. That is worthy of our attention, as worthy of our attention to ponder deeply what it will mean to reflect the character of God into the good creation that he placed us in as his image. A beautiful picture, one I've never found the equal of. What a blessing, what a privilege. Let's pray. God, you are way better than we even imagine. We keep making images of you that are all contorted and diminished and misrepresentative of you. But you are calling us back to ourselves, calling us back to what it will mean to flourish, calling us back to your image. God, we are thankful for your patience with us. We are blown away at your love for us and the way that you wait outside of the gates and run after us when we look over our shoulders at Egypt. Uh, Lord, we are hopefully and anticipating, confidently waiting on the day when you make all things new. We are, we are your children and happy to be so. Amen.